from the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and MOG, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day, with support from Genetech. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode. We're lucky today to be joined by the Samira Foundation's ambassador, Dr. Maggie Kang. Some of you know her as Maggie, a lot of you probably know her as Nell's mom. Maggie's a physician who found that her world was turned upside down when her daughter Nell began exhibiting neurological symptoms at nine years old and was diagnosed with NMO. Last year, she shared her experiences at TEDx Cherry Creek Women. She's here today to continue that conversation about how those early days impacted her family and ultimately what she learned that could probably help all of us as we work through pain and suffering. Maggie, I'm so grateful that you could be here to talk with us today. For those who may not be familiar with your story, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So great to be with you, Brian. Thank you for having me. So I, I guess my story, the NMO story, started in 2018. And prior to that, I was a radiologist physician mom. And then suddenly Nell got sick and she started to develop nausea and vomiting and well, I guess not so much the vomiting, but a lot of the dizziness and it came upon us somewhat quickly. And so I just, we all thought it was flu. We took her to urgent care, but it turns out, as you know, not to be the case. And when she was diagnosed with NMO, it was obviously a very trying time for us. And I will talk probably more about how we um, managed all of that, but overall it changed our lives. And I became a coach helping people with, uh, basically helping moms of kids with chronic needs. And I became rare disease advocate with my daughter, Nell, and an ambassador to Samira Foundation and a speaker. I gave a talk at, on a TEDx stage in November of last year. The TEDx talk was, was incredible. It was a really good look at the experience and from two different perspectives. Can you tell us a little bit more about Nell and her story? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's important to also describe who she was before NMO, which was that she was this robustly, very fit, travel across athlete who really engaged with life in every way possible. So energetic, had so many hobbies and was robustly healthy to the point where she was never on antibiotics and didn't miss a single day of school. So all of that compared to what happened with NMO was in stark contrast. So when, as I mentioned before, she developed her symptoms and we took her to the emergency room, they were, actually the hospital was fairly good about getting her MRI at the time in the ER. A friend of mine, radiologist, was probably really instrumental in that way. And so she was admitted and the diagnosis was made like, you know, pretty quickly. So here we are with this diagnosis. And she is suddenly no longer that girl. And she is lying in an ICU bed and she's unable to clear her secretions because she has a lot of the manifestations in her brainstem and it affected a lot of her cranial nerves. And it was really scary. She developed aspiration pneumonia and we were not quite sure she was even gonna make it out of the ICU. And then when we fortunately were able to recover and be discharged, she was in a wheelchair. She had lost the ability to move her right arm. So she wasn't able, able to communicate with us on this whiteboard that I had given her. And so a lot of really life-changing experiences for a young girl at age nine, which was when she was diagnosed. How long was it from when you started to notice symptoms to the point where you felt like there was something more going on? 
It was about two weeks where we went to urgent care. We went to see our outpatient pediatrician. And I think the thinking was that it's probably some kind of virus and let's just see how she does. And when it didn't resolve and got worse, we ended up going to that emergency room. When you were at the ER with Nell, or even in those early days, were you kind of bouncing back and forth between mom mode and doctor mode? I was. And to be honest, I don't even know if I fully figured that out today. So I know it's a lot of people ask me this question. It's like being um, a physician, friend or foe in this situation, right? And I'm happy to say it's more friend than foe, but for sure, it was really scary in my mind, just kind of going through every possible scenario of badness that could happen. So yes, I struggled with both. And (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I don't think I ever fully got a handle on that. Cause I, I actually think that at, at many points I was probably, um, I don't even know if it's appropriate or inappropriate that I was involved in managing her care. And that mm-hmm. might be due to the fact that it is a rare disease and, you know, it's, it's not like it, there's a, well, I don't think that there was at the time that we were diagnosed, maybe a standard protocol on management. And it just felt like I was kind of involved in all of that mm-hmm. step of the way. And to some degree that was comforting, but on the other hand, it was a lot. And maybe I should have stepped back in that role. Yeah, that, I, I think that's understandable. I, I know it seems people with rare diseases, many patients don't really have a choice, but develop kind of a higher level of, of expertise. And in many cases, they end up serving as an educator for, for the clinicians. Uh, at this point, how familiar were you with NMO? I was because a lot of times it is a radiological diagnosis. I know, of course, we we know the AQP4 antibody right now, but, you know, I was in residency and maybe like not too recent future. And so at the time there was this classic diagnosis for NMO, which is often called Devix mm-hmm. disease. And it was like that raging optic neuritis that we saw in those images. And that was something we had to understand and identify for our oral board. So yes, I was familiar with it, but I only knew it in the context of adult disease and in the context of optic neuritis. So it did surprise me when, you know, this whole thing came to our understanding that NMO had multiple sort of appearances on MRI and different manifestations on spinal cord and the brain and our manifestation was solely in the brain. So yes, I was familiar with it and I was really unhappy with the diagnosis because I just wanted it to be like a one and done inflammatory condition that we can move past. And it wasn't, it's obviously a disease that's incurable and chronic and you're basically on medications for the rest of your life, or at least for the foreseeable future until a cure is found. But I I think that I definitely learned a lot in the process of that NMO. And there's obviously way, way more to be learned. All right. So you talked about, she was really outgoing, vivacious, full of energy, you know, and I love the story about the, the log rolling. Oh, I'm um, so glad you brought that up. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that. Cause every time I meet her, I, I, I just pictured that image of her and it just makes me laugh. Going from being so full of energy and you know, with the onset of illness, how did that impact the family dynamic? It had to be quite the change on everybody. Yes, yes, it was. I'm so glad you brought up the log rolling 
story. I wanted to put that in the TEDx talk just to give people a sense of who she is a, as a human, you know, with or without disease. But yeah, so that spirit was definitely infused into our house with all of her interests and energy. She loves to cook. She plays lacrosse. She loves our cats. She loves arts and crafts. She loves to read and write, all of that. So it was really fun and exciting in our household. And when she got sick, there was, you know, definitely this feeling of sort of sadness and this loss that maybe pained me the most as a mom, just because we're moms. <laughs> and I, I did feel like that part of her was lost when she came home from the hospital. And I, and of course that coupled with the uncertainty and how to move forward was really what was very challenging and painful. But I would say that although at first, maybe like for a year or two after she was sort of, you know, discharged from the hospital and working on her recovery, her personality and the mood of the house was very different. It was, I guess, less exciting maybe. And um, we it wasn't as active, but of course, at that point, we're sort of moving into the pandemic and that seemed to be the experience for most people. So in that way, I guess it was, it was I mean, not horrible and that it didn't seem like we were missing out on the life that we knew as much because it seemed like life for everyone had shut down but i will say although that part of our family dynamic had changed it did shift into something that was actually pretty meaningful too i mean in our downtime we are having more kind of meaningful conversations and playing games and spending a lot of downtime with each other which wasn't the case before so in some ways there was a loss and then there was worry and sadness about that loss. And then there was a lot of moments of joy in ways that we probably could not have predicted. So there was loss and there was some gain and some amazing family time. As much of a struggle as it was, I, th I think that that pause allowed people to focus more on relationships and start building connections that ultimately helped them get through all of it. Now, moving on to the context of families, moms wear different hats. So she's the chef, the referee, the chauffeur. Now, in addition to all of that, you're also a physician and now a caregiver. So specifically, how do you balance being too much of a doctor versus too much of a mom? You know, you want your kids to have full lives and rich experiences, but there's also that risk calculation that has to happen. Yeah, you know, it is such a good question. I don't know that I even have a really good answer for it because I think I still struggle with the balance. And it's not even just the balance of between between job and being a caregiver, but it's also the balance of you know being present with my son who's two years older than now and kind of being present even for myself. So all of that I think remains to be a daily challenge. And some days I'm really good at it. And on other days I'm less good. But I, I think generally speaking, when I started focusing on self-care, that allowed me to have a greater range of sort of that ability or capacity to balance. So that is, I think something also I refer to in my TEDx talk because initially I didn't take very good care of myself and there was less of me to give in every aspect of my life, even to myself. But when I did take care of myself, and that includes things like going for walks, eating better, <laughs> and sleeping better, 
I think those were really just very basic fundamentals that got lost in all of the weeds of what was going on in our chaos. So when I started to bring those pieces back on board, I think it enabled me to have greater capacity to have that balance, but still struggle with it day to day. <laughs> yeah, completely understandable. I've heard you talk about coming to the realization that you were struggling and you're trying to come to terms with it all. Can you tell us a little bit more about the lead up to that? Yeah. So, you know, after we got over the acute critical point when she was in the ICU, we were so thrilled to be discharged and be in our own home. But I guess what I didn't realize at that moment was that there was a, another kind of stretch of struggle that lay ahead of us. And that was really trying to figure out how we were going to transition to our lives outside the hospital. And I think that that did require a different set of skills. And so I think during that period of time was when I made my transition from this state of mind of kind of panic and blaming myself and trying to fix and control a situation that was clearly beyond my control. And I think in that time, I, I, I also referred to my TEDx talk. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to refer to a concept that I talked about in my yeah. TEDx talk, which is this pain versus suffering. This, I think, really came to define my time after the hospital. And I realized in that quote by Haruki Murakami that pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. I understood how that was applicable to my situation because watching Nell so sick in the hospital during her diagnosis, and even as she struggled outside the hospital, she was in a wheelchair, she couldn't do all the things that she could do before. And knowing that her life had changed so much and I seeing that change was very painful as a mother. And of course it was my loss too. It was my loss of having a robustly healthy little girl. So I think staying with the pain was something that was unbearable to me. And so I moved into the state of mind of blaming myself. And then of course, trying to fix it and getting into all of that kind of sort of frenetic way of being, which <laughs> I have a tendency to do sometimes when I'm trying to control things. And so when I was in that state of mind, I think I created more stress for myself and to now. And I think the breaking point was when she acknowledged it too. I mean, she's a really sharp kid. And she just looked at me one day and said, mom, you look so stressed and you're kind of making me feel bad about this. And so that of course broke my heart. And I knew I had to make a shift because I didn't actually know at the time that what, how I was managing and sort of creating stress in my personal life was also affecting her and her well-being. And once I really became clear on that, I knew I had to make a change. And so I, at that point, was living, listening to sort of a lot of different podcasts and trying to, you know, improve the quality of my health and my state of mind. And so I, that's when I ended up hiring a coach and understanding this idea of pain versus suffering and that it's a choice. So I did make the choice to acknowledge and work through my pain. And once I did that, that really did shift everything for me. She's pretty observant. So it's not really a surprise that she picked up on it. People tend to tend to try to hide so much and we're usually pretty bad at it. You know, like to think that we're strong and can handle whatever life throws at us. But at what point do you, do we need to consider getting help? I don't actually know what that tipping point would look like for everyone, but for me, I guess there were a couple of things, not only when Nell made that very astute observation, but it was, 
I woke up on some mornings not recognizing myself and having a feeling inside me that I wasn't me anymore. And where was my life headed? So I guess it's these moments where you get quiet with yourself and you can recognize that you don't recognize yourself and that you are unhappy with the way things are going. I know that sounds pretty ambiguous. And for me, that's kind of what it was, just sort of waking up and looking at myself. Yeah, when you find so much uncertainty, I, I think you have to step back and detach and start looking at, you know, where is this going and, and why is it going this way? And just start looking for, for changes to make, even if they're just small changes. If, if you're lucky enough to have people in your life that care about you and they say something, listen. <laughs> right, which is a, an interesting point to make. So you see someone who's struggling. How do you start to have that conversation with them about, you know, hey, something's not right. I'm concerned. Right, right. Yeah, another really good question. I guess approaching somebody from a very loving and non-judgmental way is probably the best way to approach it. Something very generic, like, are you okay? And I just, I'm, I'm concerned and I want to help you. Something very open that way. Not everybody will be open to the help, obviously, but I think it's I think it's probably helpful to at least bring it to someone's attention that they, you know, something doesn't look quite right to this other person who's known you for a long time and they are there to help you. Just making sure that they understand there's, there's someone there to listen. Right. Right. We've talked about this journey that you've been on and how you've gotten to this point. Do any of those old thoughts or feelings creep in Yes, yes. And yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think when I was talking about this transition I made when I understood the difference between pain and suffering and then choosing to allow my pain and to move through it, that was all amazing. And it got me to a level where I could really shift and think about my situation differently. Now, that is not to say that every day is rosy <laughs> like that. And there are times where I can feel myself sort of you know, going down the path of worrying and, and, you know, um, trying to control and fix things that I know I can't, but I can recognize that because I recognize the feeling in me right away that, oh, I know what this feels like. And that does not feel quite right. So I can pull myself back to the main road. <laughs> and um, I think that that is why the coaching was so helpful to me that I could uh, sort of get out of my head and see myself sort of from the outside and I can recognize the feelings and the thoughts that I'm having that create a situation where I am creating suffering. <laughs> right, right. You mentioned coaching earlier. Someone had referred you and it was such a, a positive experience that it was a path that you followed and became a coach yourself. What all does coaching entail? Yeah, that's such a good question. I actually never knew that there was coaching outside athletic coaching. I mean, I've heard of, you know, Tony Robbins and people like that, but I just didn't know that this was available to, you know, day-to-day -day people. It apparently is, and it's a very large industry. What coaching is, is it's um, you meet with someone, typically it's one-on-one -on -one, and your coach asks you questions to understand how your mind thinks. And so the purpose is mostly for People who are generally high functioning, it's it's not in place of therapy and certainly not in place of any kind of psych, psychiatric intervention, but it is oriented toward improving the quality of your life, achieving your goals, understanding how you think, and it helps you understand how your thoughts help you move 
toward the goal you're trying to achieve or, or the life that you envision for yourself versus the thoughts you have that might be moving you away from that. Sounds like you sounds like you focus a lot on helping people look at their decisions and helping them understand how those decisions can move them closer or further to their goals. Right. It's sort of like bridging the gap between where you are now and the life that you want to have. And I think sometimes, I mean, this happened for me too. It's like when I was a kid or a teen or graduate of college, I had a vision of what my life would look like maybe, or how I might feel in that life. But somewhere along the way, I just got so busy and things happened. And I woke up one day and I was thinking my life doesn't look at all like that. And of course, for me, it was due to a very acute traumatic situation, but really, you know, it could happen to anyone where your life just sort of doesn't point in the right direction. And it's really, really helpful to talk to a coach because you sort of clean up the thoughts in your head, almost like when you clean out your closet or you clean out your attic, you just feel lighter, clearer, and you know how you want to move forward. We're not talking about superficial hopes and dreams like being famous or having a big house. We're talking about not being able to reconcile how life's events have changed your trajectory or how the lack of health can can rob you of hope. So in a situation like that, how do you begin working through it? Right, right. No, that's a really good question. I think the first thing is just to become aware that this is actually happening and just kind of take stock of where you are in life and where you'd like to go and recognizing that there may be a huge gap and that's okay. And then understanding how you're feeling about that situation. I, I think at that point, it's probably really good to talk to a coach, but if you don't want to, I guess you could also write it out and decide this is not the life that I wanted or intended for myself, but this is a life I'd like to create for myself. And I think it just brings agency back into your life. It's like, you know, life circumstances and things just don't happen to you. You have an ability to create what you want. So I think it's that recognition that you have agency and writing your next narrative which is, I, I like to use this narrative word a lot because I do think that it, it, it suggests that we have agency and that we have the ability to impact our narrative and actively choose the narrative we want to create. And which is really what I did, I think, when I got involved in coaching and when I noticed that Nell was getting better and that this was going to be our new narrative. I wasn't fighting with the reality that she has this disease. We were going to work with it. And we wanted to have a narrative where our family was really supportive of her. We were supportive of all the work of the Samara Foundation, and we wanted to support other patients and caregivers. So this became the narrative that I wrote for the life that I now wanted to have. And so I think, again, just to recap, become aware of where you are and think about and really think about how you're feeling about it. Consider where you want to go and the narrative you want to create. I think what's really phenomenal, phenomenal, excuse me, about the idea of the narrative is that it seems like once it gets sort of started, it builds upon itself. And this is this is the part that I find really exciting. I feel like Nell and I, you know, as advocates, we are certain we're meeting a lot of new people and networking with others in different organizations and finding opportunities to really grow and be impactful in our world. And I feel like 
this is all very exciting and it and it's really helpful because it keeps us moving forward and thinking about all the possibilities ahead of us as opposed to looking back and wishing we had the life that we had or feeling like why do we have a disease like this and no other kids or no, no none of the friends that now has seem to have the same struggle so it helps us focus our energies on creating and living in possibility in all of the amazing people we're meeting so I do want to say that there's a lot, I think, that life can offer that you may not even know exists. But the first step is opening yourself up and starting the narrative. So an example is that we I recently was offered kind of randomly an opportunity to write a book in a book collaboration involving women authors. And so Nell and I are going to write this chapter together. And oh, so, wow. yeah, so it's really exciting that we can share a story. And in fact, it's going to be very similar to what we're discussing right now on the podcast and very similar to my message in the TEDx talk because they had seen my TEDx talk and they wanted me to do almost like an in-depth sort of behind the scenes look on what was happening with me and Nell and our interaction during that time. And I think this will be really helpful to other people who maybe have a mom and daughter situation or a relationship that they want to better understand, or if they have had a diagnosis and kind of seeing our story and how we have managed through it. When's that going to be happening? I'm in February, I believe is the sort of launch and marketing time. I'll have to, it's literally came upon me. It fell into my lap within the past week. So that is a timeline they shared with me. And maybe at the time that the book is out in publication, we could talk again. But so far, I'm really excited about it. And just, it's amazing how our one story has been impacting other people's lives. And so I love that being part of our narrative. I love the idea of both of you are going to be published authors. (laughs) I know. Well, Nell is already a published author, as you know. Exactly. Exactly. yeah, yeah. And that was just phenomenal that she did that. And she, she's really happy to be able to share it with other people in the rare disease community. That's fantastic. I'm so excited. Congratulations. That's awesome for both of you. The idea of an uncertain future in that, that we can create our own narratives. We all know about negative self-talk and that it's a seed. And if we don't address it and we allow it to grow, that it's going to get out of control very quickly. You tend to focus on the flip side of that. Can you explain about positive micro moments and the ripple effects? Yes, yes. Um, So I think the negative self-talk is something that really was, it was plaguing me during the time that Nell was diagnosed because, I mean, in my mind, I was playing, uh, well, that inner critic was really talking to me about how I should have done done things differently, maybe brought it to the ER sooner, maybe immature sooner. So this was very prominent in my head creating a lot of suffering. So that point, when I learned from my coach that there is a difference between pain and suffering, and that really what I needed to do was go back and really experience and allow my pain, my grief, my loss. And that was when I made the transition through this idea of moving through pain. And when I did that, I was less tense. I guess that's the best way I could describe it. Like pain I mean, sorry, creating suffering feels like tension. Like I'm fighting something, I'm resisting. I don't like what's happening and I need to fix it. That's what it feels like. Accepting and allowing pain feels like it's a release. Acknowledging that the circumstances are beyond my control, but that 
I can respond with allowing the feeling of loss. And when I did that and moved through it, that was when I could see all of the micro moments, which probably were already happening, but I wasn't able to see it. So it sort of opened my eyes to what was happening and that there were, you know, these moments of joy and hope and all of that. So if I could focus on these micro moments of hearing her laugh and hearing these and watching these amazing interactions with Nell and her brother, Jake, if I could just focus on those, it could get me through my day. I could see more of those amazing things happening. And all of a sudden I could see her getting better. She's able to write, she's able to eat. She, you know, her chest x-ray is clearing up. She's gaining more energy and the possibility of her going back to school actually becomes a reality. So imagine that comparing to where I was before, where I was thinking the worst, like, oh my God, this is gonna relapse. What is happening? Is she gonna be on medications this whole life? Is she ever gonna be able to go back to school? Our lives are over. This is horrible. This is my fault. I should have done something differently. And like, why us? Why is she getting, why did she get sick? You know, why, why is this happening? So you can imagine that kind of <laughs> dynamic happening in my head versus the one that I described after I allowed my pain. So very stark contrast. A quick thing about pain and suffering, mm -hmm. that it doesn't happen necessarily in these very traumatic, you know, events where you know, someone you love is diagnosed with something. It really happens day to day. I mean, honestly, when I go through my day and I'm consciously aware of all the times I could respond with pain versus suffering, it's it's really kind of mind boggling. So I'll give you an example. When Nell started going back to school, I had a lot of concerns about whether or not it was the day she should go back. Is she feeling better? Is she get sick? Does she still have this cough? You know, because NMO patients are on these immunosuppressive medications. And so what was the right thing? So if I picked her up from, the, from school and she came off the bus looking horrible and just so fatigued, or I got a call from the school nurse, that's the worst, right? I'll immediately think, oh, I did, I, that was the wrong decision. I shouldn't have sent her to school that day. Like, what was I thinking? And I, you know, I would go into all of that versus, and that by the way, is the suffering. The pain would be, oh, I'm, 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 I'm so sad that she is still struggling at school or that this is going to be a struggle, that this is not going to be easy transitioning from this disease to going back to school and things are gonna be different for probably a long time. I think in that way, that's accepting pain and just accepting a situation for what it has to offer you at this time. But it's also then the recognition that I'm actually available to pick her up and that I can take care of her and that she is overall getting better. She went to school, that's amazing. And even if she couldn't stay there the whole day or something happened, that's okay. That's still you know a step further than where we were maybe a month ago. And so that's probably a good example of the difference between pain and suffering that could come up day to day. I love the comment about whether or not you're going to respond with pain and suffering. It yeah. really drives home that we we can't choose our circumstances, but we can definitely choose how we respond to the circumstances. So I, re I really love that. Okay. And you do a lot of coaching with moms, and there is definitely underlying theme of some mom guilt there about oh, why did I let her to go to school today? Or was that the right choice? So much of it. And I, and I can just imagine, or no, actually, I can't even begin to imagine what that must be like. Can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of things? 
and any advice or um, just words you would have for other moms out there? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mom guilt. Yeah. Sometimes I think about honestly, why there's so much of it. I mean, there must be some kind of evolutionary advantage of this, that moms <laughs> responsibility so that we maybe are more protected and our kids can grow and then <laughs> procreate. I don't know, but mom guilt is so huge. It's so real. Every mom knows what that feels like. And even if it doesn't make sense, it's something we all feel. So my answer to that is it's okay and meet yourself with self-compassion. That's what I think. And self-compassion is actually really, really important. It used to be this kind of fluff word that I thought was, you know, suggested almost sort of, um, I don't know, weakness because maybe that just allows you to do whatever you want and whatever, and everything's okay. No, self-compassion is so not that. It's, it's amazing. It's actually strength. It's what you can offer yourself and meet yourself where you are so that you can have the courage and the strength to feel your pain. Feeling the pain of seeing your kids struggle or sick, or it, it is actually, it's, you know, very acutely painful for a mom to watch, but it's actually okay. And to understand, I think as a mom that life, the human experience is about you know, feeling pain, disappointment, feeling joy and love. It's the full range of it. So I do think that sometimes as moms, we want our kids to be happy and healthy and amazing all the time so that we can feel better about things. But really, we want our kids to experience the full range of the human experience, the full range of human emotions. And I think when we allow ourselves that space and give ourselves a lot of self-compassion, and strength to let our kids experience that. I really think that that um, makes our experience as mothers better and maybe in turn impacts our kids' experiences. You know, specifically in the way that kids can understand that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to be disappointed. It's, you know, you can move on from that. That was really excellent. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Um, when you're coaching other moms and you see the, the struggles that they're going through, does that ever take you back to your prior experiences? For sure, it impacts me. And yes, do I relive the experience every time I go through it with somebody? I do. And this is actually a good thing. So um, it's also, I'm happy you brought this up. I've been in, in communication with a couple of NML moms and they have kids similar in age to now when she was diagnosed. So I do kind of relive everything going through their experiences, but I'm also, as I help them, I am helping myself kind of continue to process that grief. It, it's like, I know I processed it, but for some reason it always feels like, it, you know, there's always something more that I could reconnect with and that feeling of, wow, things have changed. But you know what, as I move, farther and farther away in time from that one experience, I have greater wisdom. I have greater strength and greater compassion for myself and for every mom going through that experience. So for me, it's rewarding because I can help somebody else sort of shepherding them through a very sort of dark time. And it helps me to continue to process my grief. You know, oh, there's this great poem. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, I think it's called Welcome to Holland. It's by... Mm -hmm. Kingsley, yeah, I, I actually sent this in a chat group to some of the moms that had new, um, new diagnoses of their kids. 
but she talks in that poem about obviously like you want to go to Italy and you're so excited for it but you wake up and you're in Holland and you know Holland's okay it's got tulips got Rembrandt you know you're not in this horrible place but at the same time although you adjust to Holland and you can appreciate all the things that Holland has but there's always a part of you that wonders what it would be like in Italy so it is that feeling and I think it's good to kind of revisit it from time to time and I do that when I kind of go through the experience with other moms. I can see looking back at those experiences through a positive lens now allows you to uh, experience it, but also understand that it was only one point in the journey and to put it into the perspective of how far you've traveled. So looking back, it's not just all the, the fear and turmoil of those early days, but it's seeing her getting stronger and being able to go to school and being able to experience life and all that it has to offer. But how about as a family? You mentioned that that first year was tough and there was a lot of tension in the house. Everyone was trying to adjust to how life had changed for them. Once you started changing your own outlook and seeing the differences that that made, how did you bring it to the family? Was it a matter of, you know, hey, we're having a family meeting or did you have more subtle ways of introducing the concepts? You know, I, I think it was probably both, but I was very active in sharing everything I learned in coaching because I was so excited the first time I had my coaching session. I just really, these ideas were very revolutionary to me that I could choose my thoughts, I could create my narrative, what? <laughs> and so I would come downstairs with all my notes and I would share it with everybody at our dinner table. And my son was a little skeptical, but I think Scott and Nell were much more receptive, but Jake has since then come on board. <laughs> <laughs> He's open to hearing it. But the other thing that I did also very actively, and I forgot that I did this, I, I took these um, paint markers that you can write on glass and you can wipe it off. And we have these French doors on behind our kitchen table that face our backyard and they have all those little glass squares and so I just pulled out all these amazing quotes that make me feel good and sort of suggest the narrative that I want to have and Nell and I we wrote all these quotes with paint markers and made little decorations and this was actually during the pandemic so we had plenty of time to do this and <laughs> We and so anytime I would kind of feel not so great, I would just kind of look at one of those quotes and feel actually better because again, I was changing my thoughts, which impacts my feelings directly. And so I could it helped me to kind of almost like toggle to like a, a better thought if I was sort of catching myself in a low point that day. So that really helped me and Nell. I don't know that Scott and Jake got very much out of our <laughs> our window decorations, but it was really actually impactful for both of us. No, I love that. You know, sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to see where we get stuck and having that little reminder, that little memento of either a goal or just kind of to shift our perspective can kind of snap us out of that and be like, you know, again, you get to choose or you're going to respond with pain and suffering or not, or something positive. Yeah. So that's fantastic. I love that. How can people learn more about the coaching that you do or where can people find you? I have actually right now, I have a freebie on my website. And if you want, you can look at my website, which is www.maggiekangmd.com. It tells you more about my story and our journey. If you would like the freebie, which actually is a PDF describing how you can 
start your own narrative, it's maggiekangmd.com forward slash freebie, F-R-E-E-B-I-E. And that way you could subscribe to my email list. I am starting newsletters this summer and I'm going to do monthly newsletters to sort of, yeah, give people tips on sort of how to create narratives and think about things that may be helpful to them. Wow, fantastic. Excellent. Well, thank you for spending the morning with us. I appreciate it. I learned a ton. And I think your story is really going to help people start to look at where they are and, and provide a lot of insight and give them some ideas on, on how to work through some of the challenges that not only patients experience, and but the caregivers. I feel like caregivers, a lot of times, they become an accessory. And I think that that's a shame because the the load that they carry and the burden that they carry is really by choice. And mm -hmm. so the strength that that requires and the dedication and the love that that comes from that is amazing. So I appreciate you giving voice to, to that segment of the audience. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm that that is definitely our hope. And I know that we had talked about Nell's book, but I forgot to mention the title, which is My Hospital Story. And she published that at age 12. So it could be helpful to even younger readers, but it seems like it's her message is very broadly applicable. Yeah, and, fantastic book. Yeah. And so she'll be so happy to hear that. And if you're interested in my TEDx talk, it's also on my website. I just want to mention that. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. Yes, definitely. Um, we'll make sure we add links into our show notes so everybody can find all the materials and, and the topics that we discussed. Thank, Thank you. you again. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Have a good day.